Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. The recently appointed UK trade envoy to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, Stephen Timms MP, is my newest guest. He was in Switzerland for an official visit. We talk about future prospects for trade and commerce between the United Kingdom and Switzerland. And we also address the physical dangers faced by British MPs, Stephen Timms having been the very fortunate survivor of an almost fatal knife attack in his constituency surgery some years ago. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I have a special guest today who's visiting briefly the Geneva area of Switzerland and whose visit presented me with an unmissable opportunity to obtain an experienced and inside view of Britain, the state of its current strategy on international trade, plus some other very important issues on the UK political scene, namely the physical safety of members of Parliament amid declining standards of public behaviour and apparent corruption in the body politic of the United Kingdom. My guest is Stephen Timms, MP. He's one of ten new trade envoys announced recently by Her Majesty's Government. His focus is Switzerland and Liechtenstein. He's also the MP for East Ham in London. He entered Parliament in 1994 and held post in the administration of Tony Blair, where he was Chief Secretary to the Treasury, effectively number two to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he's also held other significant ministerial positions, Minister of State level, the Department of Social Security for e-commerce and competitiveness at the Department of Trade and Industry, school standards at the Department for Education and Skills, and Minister of State for Pensions at the Department for Work and Pensions. But he's also had a real career in trade, commerce and industry as a younger man, and not, as is increasingly the case, at least in the UK, as a SPAD, which stands, if you're not familiar with the abbreviation, for a special advisor in government, or one of those jobs surrounding Parliament and Portcullis House which seem rather ephemeral to many of us who inhabit a different world of employment. Now, we're recording this interview in an important international pharmaceutical company, that's Ferrings Pharmaceuticals, which has its offices in the pretty lakeside village of Saint-Pré, midway between Geneva and Lausanne. Welcome, Mr. Timms. Welcome to Switzerland and to the McKay interview. Thank you, Michael. It's great to meet you, and may I call you Stephen for Please the Please do. It's not too, uh, not too informal, I hope. I have a list of wide-ranging questions, and I know your time is short today, so let me start straight away. Why are you visiting Ferring Pharmaceutical? And though I realise it's part of your new job, why are you here in Switzerland now? Well, as you say, I have just been appointed the Prime Minister's Trade Envoy to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, and this is my first visit to the country in that capacity. Uh, so I'm wanting to meet as many people as I can in these few days and form a view about how I can contribute to developing trade between our two countries in the months ahead, and that's what I'm very committed to helping with. So this is very much a fact-finding familiar. But it is. You, have you been here before? Or is this oh, I've been to Switzerland yeah. on a number of occasions, both for work and on, on holiday. Uh, but it's the first time that I've been here in, in this role, and I, but I'm expecting to be visiting regularly from now on. Great, great. Well, uh, I just wanted to know how you see the prospects for the future of international trade and the UK's opportunities now that the good ship United Kingdom is paddling its own trade canoe in Europe and abroad. How do you see things? Well, obviously, Brexit has happened. I was one of those politicians who campaigned against Brexit. I didn't think it was a good idea. Uh, I wanted us to stay in the European Union, but we have chosen to leave. 
And so what we now have to do is make the most of the situation we find ourselves in, dealing with some of the problems which inevitably uh, will arise and to some extent already are, but also recognising there are new opportunities from the autonomy in trade terms that we we now have. And Switzerland, I think, can be quite an important partner for us, partly because we've got some very important shared interests around financial services, around excellent universities, uh, around technology, pharma. Um, the visit here uh, to, to, to Ferrings is a recognition of that area of, of, of shared interest. But also, of course, because we're both outside the EU. And so that, I think, adds an extra layer of interest to the relationship between our two countries. Could you explain, um, as simply as you can, for the benefit of people listening who are not in business or in trade, finance, commerce, um, what are the advantages of two countries outside the EU and outside the Eurozone? Mm. Well, the... I suppose the fundamental benefit in trade terms that we have from leaving the European Union is that we can negotiate our own trade deals. So the paddling which, our own canoe. Which we haven't been yeah. able to do in the past. And we are committed to an ambitious free trade agreement with Switzerland. Uh, and Switzerland wants that as well. So I think there is a big opportunity there. And given the degree of shared perspectives between the two countries, I think it can be a very ambitious agreement. And if it is, and if it's successful, then it may well provide a template for trading relationships with other countries in the future, possibly even with the EU eventually. But we'll see how, it, how things go. Um, so there's a, I think there's a big opportunity there. And you know, Switzerland is a very important trading partner for the UK. If you take the EU as one market, Switzerland is the UK's fourth biggest trading partner after uh, the EU, uh, the US, and, and it's China. Been consistently up in that level for it many, has. many years. It's three or four percent of, of Britain's trade. So you know, it's a it's a big number, um, and that presents an important opportunity for us. And if we can maximise that, that'll be very good news, hopefully, for both of our countries. And you, you've been in Parliament a long time, and and you've been in, in business and commerce. Give me a sense that uh, if you step back a little bit from your particular brief of Switzerland and Liechtenstein, of other markets, other countries, which you think now that Britain is out of the the EU, uh, offer great potential that maybe people hadn't realised before. Well. Obviously, Europe itself is a huge market for the UK and will continue. But we both know each other in that, don't we? Notwithstanding uh, Brexit. Yes, uh, we do. And and there are a few issues to be ironed out at at the moment there. But uh, we've got very long-standing and historic and very important links with the US, but also Australia, uh, New Zealand. Of course, China is going to always be a, a big partner. And there are opportunities, I think, for us to develop some ideas with other countries that think along similar lines to us, which can be beneficial for both sides of, of the relationship. And you know, Australia is perhaps a, a, a case in point. But I think there's going to be a lot of work to be done. We, we, Britain hasn't done this kind of negotiation for a long time. We haven't needed ideas, to. Eh? We've subcontracted it to, uh, to, to Brussels. We've got to develop the skills to be able to do this job well. We've got to develop them pretty quickly because the prizes you know, are, are there to be taken at the moment. 
And I hope, in the case of Switzerland, I can make a contribution to doing a good job here. And just to press you a little bit, when you say along similar lines to ours, you mean free trade, yeah. open markets, yeah. this is the sort of thing you yeah. mean? Yeah. Because, again, but, people, often these phrases come out from politicians and from specialists, and what I call ordinary people sometimes are not quite clear about what that actually means. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And there are lots of countries that agree with the UK perspective on free trade, open markets. And Switzerland is one of them. And I think there is potential for us to do a very interesting agreement with Switzerland, including on services. You know, free trade agreements have tended in the past not really to cover services. Manufacturing, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. But given the importance of services both to the UK economy and the Swiss economy, I think it's very important that the agreement that we do with Switzerland should uh, address services and I think it could be quite a pioneering agreement for that reason. Now, I don't want to bring cloud into the sunshine and you sound confident, there's no reason why you shouldn't be confident because you're new in the job but there have been some negative headlines that I've been reading about and many other people regarding logistics, the supply chain problems, some shortages in British warehouses and British shops. Choppy waters seem to be not only a route but also ahead of the good ship United Kingdom. What's your view on that? Well, there are some problems and, of course, that's one of the reasons that people like me opposed Brexit because we didn't want to get into these problems. But we've decided that we are we have left the EU. We've now got to make this work. And I think, you know, these problems will be solved eventually. It's going to take, no doubt... A fair amount of effort. It's going to take some bumps in the road before they are resolved, but I think they will be, um, and we have to make sure that they they are. There's a job for us to do, and we're determined to to do it. Great. Okay. My guest today is Stephen Timms, MP. He's the recently appointed UK Trade Envoy for Switzerland and Liechtenstein, and he's visiting the French-speaking part of Switzerland from where we're talking now. Stephen, please forgive me if you find it rather painful to discuss publicly, but you survived a terrible terrorist stabbing in 2010, so I read, and must have come close to death. I'm really interested to have this opportunity to ask you questions of someone who suffered such an exceptional and violent personal attack. The deterioration in standards of behavior among certain members of the British public is a matter of concern for all of us. And British people living abroad like me look with horror and disbelief at what has happened over in the UK in recent years, not to mention having to answer questions from our Swiss friends, neighbours and acquaintances who often have an impression of a more genteel and well-behaved Britain. Now, your Labour Party colleague, Joe Cox, was shot and stabbed to death outside a constituency surgery in West Yorkshire in 2016. And just last month, Sir David Amos, a popular Conservative, people were stabbed to death inside his constituency surgery in Southend-on-Sea, which is not that far from your constituency. Share with me and the listeners your personal impression of what on earth is going on, why the apparent deterioration in standards of public behaviour, and what can be done to protect the safety of of members of Parliament who seem such soft and conspicuous targets like you? Sorry well, for the long question, but that's right. I want no, to just explain to people listening who may not be familiar with what's going on. Let there. me first of all say I'm very happy to talk about what happened to me and indeed what happened to my colleagues. Uh, the attack on me was in 2010. It was just after the general election. Oddly, I had just secured the biggest majority in the House of Commons, 
which I felt indicated that I was popular amongst my <laughs> constituents, <laughs> only for one of them to come along and, and, and stab me. It was a constituent of yours. It was a constituent okay. who'd made an appointment uh, to see me. She said she wanted to talk to me about an employment matter. Uh, and I vividly remember I was sitting behind the desk in my constituency. So she came, and I thought she was coming to shake my hand. It looked like that. She was sort of coming towards me. She came around the side of the table I was sitting behind. I thought she was coming to shake my hand, but yeah. that wasn't what she had in mind. She was uh, was carrying a knife. She told the police later that she'd actually bought two knives, a large one and a small one, and at the last minute she decided she couldn't hide the large one up her sleeve, so she just used the small one, which is probably why it saved I'm your life. here today. Mm. Yeah, the the surgeon at her subsequent trial said that the injury to me was life threatening, but not imminently life threatening. So they had time to patch me up and that sounds very technical. Save my, but you're save, still a lucky man. My life, extremely, yeah. extremely fortunate. Uh, it could have, you know, I think probably a few millimeters uh, would have had a, a different outcome. Um, but the uh, it, oddly, it was a very unpleasant experience. It felt as though I'd been punched. Mm. That's how it. It wasn't. It wasn't a traumatic experience. It was just a very, very uncomfortable. So I don't get flashbacks. I don't have nightmares about it. And, and that's why I'm perfectly happy to, to talk about it. And I don't think, I mean, a lot of people said to me they were feeling for me when David Amos recently was stabbed because they said they must have, that must have brought it all back for me. Um, actually, I don't think it was any worse for me than it was for all of us in the House of Commons to have a colleague dying in such awful circumstances in in a constituency surgery which of course was exactly where I was when I was stabbed and Joe Cox on her way to her constituency surgery that was also where where she was killed can I just explain again for, for my benefit because I've never been to an MP's surgery and for those listening who are maybe not British is this, is the surgery physically a, 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 a building that moves, or is it one place all the time, a fixed address? Well, it, it, it varies. Yeah. Uh, I think David Amos did surgeries in different places around his constituency. I used to do that, but for some time I've I've chosen to be in one place, fairly central. I've got an urban constituency, so it's not too difficult yeah. to move around it. People can get the bus easily and, and come and see me. At, at one place where I am every time. And that obviously makes it a bit easier because you can think carefully about making sure that you know, to the extent to which one uh, can improve security. And you have colleagues in there with you normally or are you do there have, sometimes completely on your own? I do have colleagues. I think these arrangements are very different. It depends on the MPs. MPs. In my yeah. case, I always have two colleagues with me. And since the attack on me in 2010, I sit in the middle of the two. Yeah. So we actually have three conversations going so on in parallel at any it. one yeah. time. Yeah. I'm talking to somebody who's facing me, but my two colleagues are talking to other people who are facing them. So if anyone came in again with the same idea that Roshnara Chowdhury came in with, it would be a bit harder now than it was then because there's somebody sitting between me and um and and them and this lady was she deranged i mean was she i mean I no don't, i've never read about the woman but i, d I don't think was she, she of sane mind i or? don't think she was deranged it she came after me because she objected to my voting in support of uk military action in iraq she was someone who'd been radicalized as an islamist 
probably much the same background as the person who killed David Amos, David Amos last yeah. month. Mm. Um, she'd grown up in my constituency, and oddly... So she, she was actually a local, a local person. She was. Yeah. She'd come to see me when she was at school with her school group, and one of her school mates had given me a hard time on that visit about the Iraq issue and uh, had sort of piled into me and I attempted to defend my position. She hadn't said a word, but I, I think this exchange had sort of preyed on her mind a bit and she decided that she needed to come back and sort of finish off the uh, the, the exchange. Um, anyway, she's now serving a 15-year minimum prison sentence and curiously... Uh, fairly recently, I discovered she's written three letters to me, which I've now seen. Um, so we'll see where that where that goes. What's but, your uh, view on, um, first of all, public behaviour in the UK? I mean, I know 65, 70 mm. million people. Mm. Not, not fair to ask you that, but you can. Often, this is the difficulty when you are an expat. You live abroad. Mm. You live through watching British television, the newspapers, or online. Um, I have family there, but I'm not living there, so mm. I don't I don't know the pulse mm. of the place. But what is your well, view on that? We we've had a problem with Islamism. Clearly, uh, I was a victim of that. David Amos was, and there have been other quite high-profile incidents as well. But they are very, very few and far between. Well, thank so, God. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. So uh, you know, I was, once I recovered from my injury, I went back to my surgeries, and in the eleven years since, there have been no further untoward incidents. But of course, it only takes one person to cause a, a really serious problem. So I, I, I don't think we've got a, a general problem about disorder, but we do have an issue with this particular, uh, with a tiny minority. And, you know, what was interesting for me, after I got stabbed by this woman who said she was doing it in the name of Islam, I was inundated with messages and letters and cards from Muslims living in my constituency saying, we are praying for you for a speedy recovery well, it doesn't surprise and, me and, and 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 who were all appalled that somebody would do such a thing in the name of their faith mm. um and you know in a, a, a slightly odd consequence i think of, of what happened was a, a strengthened relationship between me and, and the muslims living in my constituency and uh, obviously the obvious question um, but from a practical point of view can the state protects 650 members of parliament, and would members of parliament want that? Well, th there are certain things you can do, and I'm sure after what's happened to David Amos, we are going to all have to review again the security arrangements in our constituency surgeries. After what happened to me, the police said to me, would you like us to erect a knife arch on the way into your It's surgery? like a metal, a metal detector. A metal thing. detector, yeah. so we can see whether people are bringing... And I just thought that that would make the experience of going to see your MP so unpleasant that I said, no, let's not. And as I say, nothing untoward has happened since. But, you know, maybe we do need to look at that kind of, of thing again. What's really, really important, though, is MPs have to be accessible. Otherwise, there's really no point. People in my area who've got a problem need to know they can come and see me and talk to me as their representative and discuss their problem and see if I can help them to solve it. And it would be an absolute tragedy, a disaster, I think, if we lost that accessibility, as we could do if we respond unwisely 
to incidents like the one that I was a victim of and that David Amos was a victim well, of. Let me tell you, what I, uh, when, when I knew that I was going to meet you and I read about you, I called a couple of friends of mine in the UK just to find out, and I think they sort of bit laughing at me because my language sounded old-fashioned, and if things like hustings still existed, yeah. well, do MPs... Yeah. I mean, I remember as a, a boy, I grew up in the Wells constituency, um, going along to the town hall and listening to the, the candidates yep. on the yep. stage. It was a Tory constituency in those days. Yep. I don't know what it is now. Still Tory. Uh, is it still Tory? Yeah. Okay. And um, the, uh, at least they were accessible. People asked questions. Yeah. And someone said yeah. to me on, on the phone just a couple of days ago, no, no, no Michael, the, the MPs generally see that as an inefficient way of using their time and talking to the public. Is that your experience? Well, I mean, I do you have I, those public meetings yes, yourself? I, yes, I still do it at election time. I mean, your, your friend is right in the sense that not many people ask us to do it now. Yeah. Uh, at the last election, there was a church which invited all of the candidates in, and we had a public meeting and a, a discussion, and I enjoyed doing it. But, of course, you can do things now online. You can do things uh, over Twitter. Um, you can do things on uh radio stations, local radio stations, so there are other opportunities. But but the personal face-to-face -face accessibility of a Member of Parliament, I think, is a crucial feature of our democracy. Well, I'm glad we to hear you say we that. We mustn't yeah. lose it. I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm not, I don't want this to sound like a negative kind of interview, but I've got to talk to you about the other thing which is happening in the UK, the low esteem in which the p political classes are held by the public. I mean, it's nothing new, as you know, in... British parliamentary history, and it goes back, I was reading over 200 years, one of the favourite book titles I came across is from 1820, The Black Book, or Corruption Unmasked, being an account of places, pensions, and sinecures, etc., etc., etc. And Sir Anthony Selden, you probably know his more recent book on mm -hmm. trust, mm -hmm. and how we lost it and how to get it back. It tracks statistics on public opinion of various professionals, professions as far back as the 1960s. Uh, but the statistics don't flatter the political classes one bit. So now the Johnson administration is, is a stench of corruption, it seems, from what I read. Uh, it's in the media. But as you know, having been in Parliament a long time, no major party is without sin. What is your assessment of the probity of politicians to come to the point in the UK today? Does it worry you that the general public have such low expectations of their parliamentary representatives, and what can be done to restore the loss of trust that has been going on for many years, and will that restoration of trust actually take place? So, again, it's a rather long-winded question, but I'll leave it to well, you now. Well, the so. Owen Patterson case, which is the one that's in the headlines at the moment, I think was pretty disgraceful, and the House of Commons Standards Committee recommended that Owen Patterson should be suspended from the House for 30 days, as a, a punishment for him advocating on behalf of companies that were paying him to do so, which has been against the rules in Parliament since 1695. For some reason, the government felt they should protect him and kind of change the rules in order to avoid him being punished. I think what happened, and the government managed to force that through the House of Commons with a small majority, despite many, many Conservative MPs being extremely uncomfortable about it, I think what happened then was that the grassroots of the Conservative Party rose up in fury against their representatives in Parliament. An embarrassment problem. And, 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 and shame. <laughs> yes. And the following day, the government did a U-turn and said, oh, no, we're not going to go ahead with that after all. And I believe they have now accepted that the original 
motion from the Standards Committee will be passed in the case of, of Owen Paterson. So I hope they've learned a lesson from that. Why they thought that was a good idea, I just do not know. And some of the people who were involved in it on the Conservative side are people I know and respect, and it's a complete mystery to me how they ever persuaded themselves this was a sensible thing to do. But I do want to make this point to you, and this is something that really became very clear after the death of Sir David Amos, there was a huge outpouring of anguish in South End after the death of their Member of Parliament. Yes, he was a popular man. He was an extremely yeah. popular man. He was an accessible man, um, and he was everywhere. And I, I knew him well because he grew up in the area that I represent, and he always was interested in what was going on in our area. We don't vote Conservative in my area. Uh, David actually stood for the council and he stood for Parliament in my area many years ago in the 1970s and got absolutely nowhere and he found more promising uh, electoral opportunities elsewhere. But he, he was always interested in what was happening and was helpful to us. So I knew him for, for, that, uh, for that reason. But, you know, if you look at that outburst of anguish and sadness in the community and and fondness for their representative i think that shows that the attitude of people in britain to their members of parliament is not always as is indicated by these polls that you've correctly been referring to i think often if you say to people in britain what do you think of members of parliament they say they don't think very much if you say to them then what do you think of your member of parliament they will often say, well, my member of parliament is great. It's exactly and the he's, same. he's helped me no end. No, it's good you say that, because uh, research I've read from corporate life yeah. is if you ask people fairly low down the chains, what do you think of the chief executive? Well, not much. Yeah. But what, what do you think of your boss? Oh, my boss is okay, yeah. but the yeah. chief executive, because yeah. he's four or five levels above. And yeah. I think there's a similar thing with the way people view their local councillor, yeah. their local MP, yeah. as opposed to you know people at cabinet level. I think that's right. And so I, I think actually the degree of public support for the parliamentary system is stronger in the UK than we, than we sometimes think. That said, I mean, we do have to clean up our act. We cannot have members of parliament being paid by companies to lobby uh, uh, or, or propose changes in the law to benefit their paymasters. That's clearly completely unacceptable. So before we finish... We don't need some further changes to address it. Practically, Stephen, before we finish, when you've been in Parliament a long time, what kinds of things do you think the body of members of Parliament, whether left or right or centre or whatever, should be doing to raise the way in which people see that class? Mm. Or is it just one of those things that happens in representative democracies? Well, what, what should happen if something goes wrong is those who offend should be punished. And that's what the Standards Committee is there to do. And it should have been allowed to do its job uh, last week instead of being blocked by a whipped vote of government members in Parliament. I hope that lesson will now have been learned and that next time somebody does something wrong and the Standards Committee finds against them, the government will allow the punishment, whatever it is, to be served. And I think if we can show that that system does work and the government won't block it from working, then I hope over time we will be able to, to rebuild trust. So indignation and action on the part of MPs and, of course, that the public voices its opinion 
uh, to let their representatives say this is not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the public get the chance to uh, express their view uh, at, at an election exactly. every four or five yeah. years. Last question, Stephen. Um, does your visit to Switzerland continue from here, or are you going back to the airport tonight? I mean, what else is on your itinerary? Yep, no, I should. You can talk about it. I'm, I'm going to Bern, I'm going to Zurich. Uh, in this visit, which, as I say, is the first in my current capacity, but I'm expecting to come back regularly uh, over the the period ahead, and I'm looking forward to, to doing so, uh, to establishing where I can best contribute to building UK-Swiss trade. I think there's a very big prize there for both of our countries, and it needs me to be talking to people, meeting people, talking to people in the UK as, as well as in Switzerland in order to make the most of the opportunities ahead. Well, I wish you well. You're Thank always you, welcome on the McKay interview. And thanks for answering all my questions so openly and so frankly and uh, so fairly. It's been Thank a you pleasure meeting you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.